Most of my life, I have been entirely unafraid of flying in planes. It's not that I flew a lot when I was growing up, but when I did, it was fun. I loved especially being able to look out, having a window seat and being able to look out. The view on clear days was awe-inspiring. And even on cloudy days, coming through that layer of clouds and being above it and looking down on top of the clouds felt like glimpsing heaven. Then, excuse me, a few years after I actually started as the pastor here at Queen Anne Presbyterian, a plane from Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, was on its way back to Seattle and crashed, killing 88 people. About half of those people were from Seattle, including a whole family, parents and kids, from this neighborhood. I didn't know the family personally, but there were people in our congregation who did. And something about that family's death struck a a chord deep within me. And from that moment on, every time I flew on an airplane, I became a little bit more frightened. My anxiety built slowly but steadily over years. And it reached a point where I was so terrified to fly I honestly began to think that I would only ever be able to go to places that I could get to by land or by water. Thankfully, before one flight a few years ago, I told my primary care doctor about my fear, and I asked if he had any recommendations of over-the-counter options I might try to help calm my nerves beforehand. And he said, well, why don't I give you a prescription for a few Xanax? Uh, Take a half a pill, you know, a few days before your first flight, just to get an idea of kind of the effect it has on you. And then uh, on the day of the flight, about 45 minutes before takeoff, take one or half a pill and see how it goes. It was brilliant. Uh, In fact, after several flights, I realized that once I got into the air, Without all of the anxiety I had been building up, I was fine, even on longer flights where the, the, the pill would wear off uh, before landing, I'd be okay. In fact, it's gotten to the point where having eliminated that initial anxiety, I've actually forgotten the prescription a couple of times and still been fine. But I did learn one trick before being prescribed chemical help that still comes in handy when I either forget the prescription or things get really dicey or seem unusual, which means, in my mind, potentially dangerous. And that is to watch the flight attendants carefully. My theory is that if they get panicky or look scared, then it is okay for me to start freaking out. But... If there's some loud bump or weird smell or there's this horrible turbulence and they're still yucking it up with the passengers or with each other, then I figure, okay, we're we're probably going to be fine. It's especially comforting to have a flight attendant on a plane who has some wrinkles. 
and maybe even gray hair because I figure they've been through it all. And I can trust that if they're yawning when I hear one of those weird sounds like someone is drilling in the cargo hold, I can take a deep breath and go back to my movie. Now, there is a wealth of wisdom to be gained by us from this morning's text. But at least one of the jewels I would like us to walk away with is this, that when we face uncertainty in what we should make of situations in our lives, turning to Christ and observing Christ carefully can bring us great comfort. Not only can we take our cue on how to respond from observing the way in which Christ responds to the forces in our lives. But even more importantly, this story reminds us that Christ has the ability to control any and all forces in our lives, no matter what they are. And therefore, no matter what storms or chaos we experience, Christ is more powerful and we can find shelter in Christ's presence. I think the mistake the disciples made here in this event was interpreting Jesus's calm as indifference. In most respects, the disciples were justified in being terrified. They are out in the middle of a large lake in a small wooden boat, and like I said with the kids, there's no motor. They're out there on their own in a horrible storm, horrible. In fact, Tom Wright, British theologian, helps us understand how serious this situation was. He writes that to this day, even in the 21st century, to this day, the car parks, the parking lots on the western shore of this lake, the Lake of Galilee, have signs warning drivers of what happens in high winds. The sea can get very rough very quickly, even in a completely clear blue sky, and big waves can swamp cars parked on what looked like a safe beach. So if that's what can happen on the shore, think about the churning and the turmoil that can take place out on water in a little wooden boat. In addition, Tom Wright also notes that other than professional fishermen, people who made their lives from fishing, the Jewish people were not, as he says, seafaring people. And we know that only some of the disciples that were with Jesus in this boat were even fishermen. So I think it's a completely fair reaction to the moment for the disciples to be at least afraid, if not terrified. So why is Jesus so harsh? Verse 40, again, we hear him say, to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And literally in the, the Greek, it's, are you still so cowardly? Well, notice what the disciples say to Jesus when they wake him up. That's verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. 
The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't you care if we drown? From our vantage point here and now, completely at a distance from the actual experience, do any of us for a moment believe that Jesus didn't care whether his disciples lived or died, whether they drowned? Of course he cared. This man is devoting his life to investing in them and in their lives and in their future. He ended up allowing himself to be executed to save their lives, their eternal lives. In fact, what is the first thing he does in response to their question? Verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, be quiet, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm he removed the threat. He showed that, yes, he does care about their lives. He does care whether they drown. Only then, after he removes the threat from them, does he say, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I think Jesus is upset because everything he has been saying and doing up until this point has been to convince them that God loves them and cares deeply about their lives, that God wants to heal them and free them now and into the future, and that he, Jesus, is with them to reveal all of this. I think Jesus' frustration with them is that after all that they have already been through, that their first question would be, don't you care whether we live or die? course he does. Maybe if they had trusted Jesus more, they might have looked at him lying there in the stern of the boat sleeping and comforted each other and thought, well, if he's not worried, then maybe we shouldn't be. Maybe if they had trusted Jesus a bit more, they might still have woken him up, but first said, Jesus, we're terrified. Help us. Maybe they might still have woken him up and said, Jesus, we're scared. Can we hunker in with you? They might even have woken him up and said, Jesus, we're afraid the boat is going to sink and we don't want you to drown. Before we move on to the wider implications of this story, I just want to add right away two things. One, two thanksgivings, actually. One is thank God for the disciples and their willingness to share their stories of messing up. We never have to fear being the slowest or most foolish followers of Christ because the disciples have reached that point well before us. And two, thank God for Jesus because even though the disciples were slow and foolish, Jesus still calmed the storm. He didn't let them suffer and just say, well, deal with it, ye of little faith. He calmed the storm, even though it wasn't maybe the most perfect response. He calmed the storm, and this is the wider implication of this story. Ultimately, 
Christ will calm every storm in our lives and in this world. As much as this story speaks to the experience of a handful of Jewish men on a lake in Palestine 2,000 years ago, Bill Lane, a former professor from Seattle Pacific, points out the cosmic overtones in this gospel story must not be missed. The subduing of the sea and the wind was not merely a demonstration of power. It was an epiphany through which Jesus was unveiled to his disciple as the Savior, the Messiah, the anointed one of God in the midst of intense peril. Very early in this incident, or excuse me, very early this incident was understood as a sign of Jesus's saving presence in the persecution, persecution which threatened to overwhelm the church. For the Jewish people of biblical times, the sea had profound symbolic meaning. Again, Bill Lane explains, the sea is understood as a manifestation of the realm of death with overtones even of the demonic in its behavior. And that's why we hear in that Hebrew First Testament passage that these four great monsters, these four great beasts arise out of the sea. This is part of Daniel's vision. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. The visions passed through his mind as he was lying in his bed. He wrote down the substance. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea, the place of death and even demonic connotation. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. But even in Daniel's vision, again, God is more powerful than the monsters of the sea. Beginning in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. Hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, the books were opened, and then one like the Son of Man came with clouds from heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men and women of every language worshipped him. His dominion, his strength, his power, his majesty, his, his control is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In our passage this morning, Jesus is more powerful than the chaotic sea. He stood up and rebuked the wind. Calm, quiet, be still. And it happened. In the end, in the end of ages of ages, through Christ, all that the sea represents in the Bible, chaos, 
terror, evil, will be overcome entirely. And that's what John saw in his vision of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and women, and God will live with them. They will be God's people, and God will be with them and be their God. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things, including chaos and terror and evil, has passed away. This week, in our nation and in our lives, the sea stormed over its borders, over its bounds. Chaos, terror, and evil broke past the barriers of order and peace and justice. And many of us were and are fearful, anxious, some angered, even enraged. I believe that we can hear God's voice speak to us through this story. Jesus does care whether we live or die. No matter how great the chaos, the terror, or the evil, Christ's power is greater. And God will not only calm all that is wrong, but ultimately will rid it from our world. In the meantime, we look to Jesus for our cue on how much or, well, on how we might respond to life and the forces in our lives. And when we are afraid, we turn to Christ for comfort and shelter. He does care and he will bring peace. Thanks be to God.